Now in their 18th year, Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Officially licensed collections include hit titles like John Carpenter's The Thing, Evil Dead, Creep Show, Jaws, and so many more. Evil Dies this Tuesday, October 5th, as Fright Rags unleashes its Halloween Kills collection. T-shirts, long sleeves, hoodies, and an exclusive enamel pen will all be in stock and ready to ship. Get yours before they're gone. All officially licensed and available on Tuesday, October 5th at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time at fright-rags.com. Colors of the Dark listeners get 10% off when they use the code DARK10 at checkout. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter promo code COLORS, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry. And with me is Elric Kane on what's the other up? side of the country. Yeah, what's up? You're at your, your mom's house? Just hanging? <laughs> just chilling I'm like you do? Just chilling at my mom's house. Uh-huh. No, I am on the East Coast for a film convention um, that I'm speaking at. And so I took a couple of days and thought I would go see my parents while I'm on the East Coast. So I, I don't believe any of that. You went all the way to the East Coast so you could show Night Beast on screen. That's why you just went to the East Coast. so this Friday I am showing Night Beast at the Alamo Draft House in my hometown, Winchester, Respect. Virginia. And so um, and they asked me, they were like, Do you want to screen something while you're in town? And I was like, Can I show Night Beast? And they said yes. Um, and cool. So this Friday I'm screening Night Beast, and then Saturday I have to give a keynote speech, um, which will be less night beasty. But yeah, I'm keynote, excited. blah blah, night beast. Night beast. Oh, night you know, that's what we're here well we also yeah, yeah we did a fun screening of psychomania a couple days ago um mm-hmm. so we're back back doing some of the online screenings um and then we were also a big plug for uh we did a big epic body horror three hour episode on screen drafts so if you are unaware of screen drafts you're missing a very fun show and we uh we won't talk about what we picked and what we didn't pick what, <sighs> we, didn't, what we didn't pick that will at some point come back to haunt, one to haunt of us, yeah. Especially one of us who will be haunted by me. Yes, yes, uh, I know. Uh, just by you, though. No one else. Just outright. Me, me, and Jeff Fahey will both. Maybe be Jeff Fahey. I uh, doubt that, I though. Will, I, I doubt will, he. Uh, no, I have him on Jeff, speed dial. Jeff Fahey got a slight shiver, and then he was like, "What the fuck was that? Forget it." And that was it. <laughs> it's it's so, rare that people are talking about him in hushed tones like, on podcasts. Somebody so. talked about that movie. Whoa, that was just of weird. Course we're, of course, we're talking about Lawnmower Man, but you'll have to listen to the episode and <laughs> the full picture. I will reveal no more. But it was a lot of fun, and I'm sure we'll be getting a lot of flack on Twitter in the next few days. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, their show. I also one other thing to plug, not for us, but our friend. 
uh, who has been doing this. This is their third album. Sean Keller, I promised we'd mention up here, his oh, new yeah! spooky album, Killer Sounds of Halloween 3D, is going to come out October 5th on Bandcamp. This is his third uh, edition of these amazing uh, Halloween themed tracks and albums he's been putting out that will They're definitely so put you on the mood. Fun. Yeah, They're they'll so put you fun. on the mood. Honestly, last year during the pandemic, like listening to it made me feel better Um, because it was very much like my friends are still out there and they're still creating stuff. Like it was this moment of like, you know, there's still creative people out there. So um, and yeah, so thank you so much for that, Sean. Yeah, no, it's Um, good stuff. So yeah, we have been, um, I haven't been watching as much as I've been reading because I had a very long day on a plane. Um, So yeah, let's dive in. And, but we both, well, we both watched brand new cherry flavor, which we will get to momentarily. Um, but I watched it before this when you finished it during, so I finished it during. Yeah. So, but you also watched new midnight mass show, which I have intentions to starting, but I am two episodes away from this, the final, uh, second season of evil. So I have to finish evil and then I will get back into midnight mass. So yeah, I I won't go deep and and I wouldn't want to go deep because I wouldn't want to, I definitely will not even touch on plot because I went in completely blind. All I knew is that this was one of Flanagan's dream projects. I knew it took a very long time to get made. I've been impressed. There isn't a single thing he's made so far that I haven't liked. And even the ones that I'm like, you know, less in love with, I'm still really invested in like the second season of Wanting Hill House. He still really liked it. Uh, Mm. Let me just lay it on you like this. This is the best thing he's done. It blew me away on an emotional level. And if you only watch the first three episodes, you might not even think it will go hard because I I didn't know where it was going to go at all. Right. And so I'm watching the first three and the first two. There's a couple hints, I guess, by the third. But once you get into the fourth episode on and it goes really fast from there, it has a real mixture between what is the horror? What is the human story? And a lot of this is about uh, beliefs, existence what happens to us afterwards and it's fucking some deep ass shit and i'm not like of all the people i know i am the least talky i do not like talky movies i believe cinema is an art form of visuals and this is his talkiest thing and yet the monologues and the dialogue are so beautiful and pulled me in so deeply that i walked by going this will probably be number one and when the year ends on my horror list and i will include wow. it as a, a movie at the moment that's where it stands for me because it because the characters are so good and it's just this kind of level of writing that i i wouldn't have necessarily even know he was necessarily capable of uh even though the hints are there in the first season of hill house i think um but so it's, it's terrific was- it's terrific when you talk about this is something that he'd been trying to write for a long time years ago. And I mean, like right after he had made absentia, he and I were booked on a panel together at StokerCon, Um, and it was on the queen Mary in long beach. And at that meet, when we were doing that, we ended up having coffee together. Um, and I remember us talking about like passion projects, like what we were shopping around right now. And he said something about this story on an Island. And it wasn't until I read the log line for this, that I was like, oh shit, that's what he was talking about that long ago. So yeah, it's like years in creation. And people, and and it just, again, it goes to show the good stuff won't get made straight away. As frustrating as that is to us, the Mm -hmm. the ones who want to make it, it's like this, you know, he probably had to have the rejection and had the experience of those other long format shows to have been able to 
hit the bullseye with this. Now, I know, like anything, I'm sure some people won't dig this away, and I definitely don't want to overhype it. I'm going to purposely tell you nothing, but I'll just give you the first line, which is, yeah, it's set on an island. Uh, a, a new priest has to take over the parish who's just come because something's happened to the older priest, and things start to change the fabric of everyone's lives over the like just a couple of days. And and it's really uh, it's it's really rare to see somebody be able to mix tones. It it does feel, and I saw some people post about it. It feels like the great Stephen King novel that wasn't written by Stephen King. Like it feels mm. like that world, which obviously Flanagan knows inside and out. Um, yeah. I don't want to say more. And once you've seen it, maybe we'll do a. Um, maybe it'd be fun to do like once you finish it, and later in October, maybe we do a more spoilery convo on it um, yeah. at the end of the episode, maybe just for those who <laughs> want to hear about it. But it was really emotional. There's two or three episodes where you're just like, shit, man. And I think it's the pandemic and it's life. Uh, losing loved ones a lot of that is at the heart of what this is about and if you can mix that and still be scary that's what the masters do very few people can do that you get to usually you can do one or the other um so it's about seven episodes and i did not intend to watch it all before i did this i thought i was going to watch the first two like most tv shows and then Mm -hmm. all i did this weekend was watch that i gave up on watching other movies and i just i mean i've got a couple other on my list to talk about but that was the thing that I wanted to keep doing. And I will say I felt I was going to tweet it, but it felt too cold blooded to write. I felt so sorry for the smaller indie film horror film that I watched after I finished this, but like the next day, because it's kind of like a tidal wave <laughs> that just destroyed whatever was going to be next on the docket was like, not going to, uh, not going to level up. So anyway, I want people to see it and you know, then we'll talk. I about will it. catch up on this one and I need you to catch up on evil because that's why I keep talking about it is it has become the only thing I want to watch. Yeah. Um, which is great. It is, it is truly a binge watch for me where anytime I'm sitting down and I'm like, okay, I got an hour. It's this. I'll try to watch so, the first yeah. episode of the first season just so I get a sense of what it feels go like. Three, go three episodes in. Get yeah. three episodes in. Um, Usually just so then I'm either pulled in or not. Yeah. But so yeah, I'm excited. Mass. I've been hearing a lot about it, so I'm super excited to catch up on this one. Um, so as I mentioned, I did a lot of reading because I was on a plane for like 12 hours with layovers and delays trying to get cross country. So literally, I like brought a stack of stuff to read during my entire week trip as I'm traveling around. Um, And I ended up reading every single bit of it on the plane Hmm. and watching a movie as well, just because I ended up, um, my first flight was delayed four hours and then they had to reroute me. And then my second flight was delayed two hours. And it was just like- Tell me all this as I have to catch a flight in a couple days. Oh my God, it was just- scare me. (laughs) I don't know if this is just pandemic because even when I was flying to Mississippi and coming back this summer for uh, my film, both of the flights were delayed like six hours as well there and back. So I have not had like an on-time flight since pre-pandemic. So I'm just like losing. I haven't been on one yet. So this will be my first. Yeah. And so I'm hoping to God, like our flight back is a little bit more pleasant because man, two kids getting like six hours worth of delays and rerootings and just they ate so much McDonald's that day because I literally had no what no clue what else to do with them other than just like who wants a Sunday? Okay. Who wants McDonald's at twice the price? <laughs> the airport, <laughs> Let's airport go price. do that. Yeah. $9 French fries. Yeah. So, okay. Um, yeah. So, but um, the first thing that I read on the plane was Plunge. And I read the entire thing. So Plunge um, is written by Joe Hill, uh, who everybody knows from Lock and Key and mm-hmm. uh, just an absolutely amazing writer. 
And uh, this was apparently a mini series. It was released as like a, a, a series of short comics, but I bought like the full collection, the book start to finish in this just beautiful hardbound cover. Um, and it was just an absolute treat. So I had actually purchased this during the pandemic, the 2020 release. So this one's super recent. I had bought this during the pandemic when I was blind buying a whole bunch of graphic novels just because I was bored as shit. And so there was definitely like a two day period where I just bought like 20 graphic novels and I was like, there's my pandemic reading. And I've slowly been working my way through them because even though I was bored to shit, I still had to do a job and everything. So yeah, um, I didn't get as much time off as I had hoped to just sit and read. You got to lend me some of these so I don't have to buy them. (laughs) Yeah, I've been working my way through. I I, I bought like everything that horror-wise that had been released from like 2019 and 2020. Um, So yeah, this is, it's set in... Well, I'll say it's set in contemporary time, but uh, it begins in 1983 where this oil ship, something happens aboard this oil ship and you don't really know what it's like a research oil ship. Now we go four decades in the future and it is current day. And all of a sudden this oil company starts getting the distress beacon from this oil ship that disappeared in 1983 in the Bering Strait. So it's been 40 years that they thought this ship was just lost at sea and all of a sudden the distress signal starts going off. And so they start assembling a salvage team. You know exactly where this is going. I love this story because it is exactly where you think it's going. They start assembling a team, um, a salvage team to go recover this. And they realize that there's been a tsunami in the area recently. So what they think has happened is that the ship has been pushed aground Um, or at least up onto kind of some rocks, like an atoll because of the tsunami. And they think that like the, um, the beacon is solar powered. And so it's now firing. If it's exposed to sun, it's firing. So wherever it is, it's close enough to the surface that it's getting sunlight. And so they assemble this salvage team to go find this ship. And I will stop there just so that I don't ruin anything. But oh my God, this is the most beautiful um, aquatic horror gift from the gods that I could have been given while sitting in an airport pulling my own hair out. Um, It is just this beautiful 1980s. It is gory. It is body horror. It is intense. It is, I did not see where it was going, even though that it is, you know, an intense body horror, aquatic horror. It is not a story that I had read before. It was definitely bringing in some new elements to it. Um, The art was awesome, done by Stuart Amonian. Um, And yeah, I just absolutely loved this. I'll just say parasitic worms, and that's where I'll drop. All right. So yeah, this one, it was, it felt like, um, Leviathan mixed with, um, there was a lot of things that it was mixed with, but it definitely, it had some Leviathan, but there was definitely other places that it went with it that were just really exciting. A little bit of squirm in there. I like it. Yeah, there was definitely some squirm. Um, it just, it, it, and it was all in the Arctic. So it felt cold too. So it, Mm. it reminded me a lot of, um, I can't even remember the name of the show. I used to watch all the time about the crab fishermen um, in the Northern Bering Sea. No no. no, no, that was about the Alaskan town. No, yeah, this yeah, was, yeah. I can't even remember the name of it now. Perfect Catch or Deadliest Catch. That was oh, it. Oh, Deadliest of course, Catch. the reality show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reality show yeah. about, um, you know, these crab fishermen in the Bering Sea. And so that's kind of the environment that this book is set in where it's just cold and harsh and rocky outcroppings and just mean ass waves and 
Oh, it just, it, it did something to me. It was wonderful on a plane. Um, so yeah, this it's uh, from Hill House Comics, which is DC Comics in print. And again, this is recent 2020 from Joe Hill. Cool. Um, a quick one, just in between her. I, I hosted a screening on Saturday night uh, in Hollywood of a film uh, that I've mentioned here when it was at Sundance called Coming Home in the Dark. It's a hardest hitting movie by far this year. I haven't seen anything that hits quite so hard and fast as this does. I will not spoil why it's. And when I say hard, I mean H as in Haneke hard uh, thriller. This is by a very good, you know, longtime friend of mine, uh, James Ashcroft. Uh, this one had a, I did a Q and a, I hadn't seen it on screen. So it was fantastic to get to see it on a screen. Cause I watched it on my computer for Sundance. Um, the lead actor who is one of those guys you're like, Oh yeah, no, yeah, most people have heard of him. You go to his Instagram. He's got 4.2 million followers on Instagram. It kind of blew my mind. Uh, just not that that matters to me at all, but it's one of those things that where you see that you're like, well, how do all these people know him? But he is What's from the vampire Di- Daniel Gillies, uh, from vampire ah. diaries and the originals. Um, anyway, he's the lead. He's totally trans formed in this movie it's it's i think it's one of the best roles of the year personally i think it's going to change his career completely um because it's just so menacing and dark and it's such an interesting character he plays so i did this as a surprise actually i i talked to the people uh, beyond fest hosted it and i asked them to not reveal that i was doing this to the director or him because they both knew me so it was kind of fun to just show up to a screening and get to do a q a with somebody who i had met a few times and it was a lot of fun for those who who came but the reason i'm bringing that up is because it is in theaters as of today uh, in uh, America, it will be hitting theaters on, um, you know, on this the Friday that this episode comes out. So, very excited about that. I'm very, it's very surreal for the guy, you know, to be flatting with somebody in college. You know, we were roommates all the way through university. That to see his film in Hollywood was very surreal for me, um, and kind of amazing, and kind of makes you just realize anything's possible. I love that. So, it's a really cool movie. Again, it's more for the people who can, because it's not quite hard. It's more like extreme hardcore thriller. But Mm -hmm. you have to have the stomach for it. Um, So that's Coming Home in the Dark. Coming Home in the Dark. In the Dark, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to go with another kind of um, statement title. And this is another graphic novel I read. There's Something Killing the Children. Mm. Which is a damn good title. So this is an ongoing comic book series published um, by Boom. And the uh, writers are James Tinian IV and Werther Del. Adira. I hope I said that correct. Again, this is from Boom. This was another of my pandemic buys. Um, Again, just kind of starting work on that stack. This came out in September of 2019. I bought it like in spring of 2020 during my pandemic um, graphic novel binge buy. And the whole setup of this is that there is this town called Archer's Peak. And all of a sudden, all of these kids start dying in these vicious ways. Some of them, they're not finding their bodies, but other times they're finding body parts. Sometimes they're finding torsos. Sometimes they're just finding limbs or blood pools. And everybody in town thinks that this one teenage boy did it, is doing it. Mm. Because there was one time where he went out into the woods with like five of his friends and something attacked them all. And he was the only one who walked out. And so everybody in town has kind of pinned him as the murderer. And nobody really knows what's going on. And all of a sudden, he is taking all this abuse and kind of getting picked on one day, like really getting like beat up about it. And this girl rolls into town, and her name is Erica Slaughter. And she basically says, I'm here to kill the monster. And she keeps calling somebody on the cell phone saying, I think it's a class five. No, it's probably a class C. 
and you don't really know what's going on. But all she keeps saying is that no one else can see the monster except for children because only children believe in them. And so there's a monster in town that only children can see, and therefore it only attacks children, and she's here to kill it. And that's kind of your your kicking off point. And that you find all that out within the first 10 pages. So like the first issue of what would be the comic. I bought the first three volumes of this, so like a huge chunk of it. And so um, it was a good couple hours of reading on the plane. And it was just a wonderful world to dig into this character of Erica Slaughter, who is basically kind of um, like, you know, a, a traveling from town to town, taking care of your monster problem. So it it had kind of um, a supernatural vibe to it in that where it is like, you know, I'm here in this town and now I'm traveling to this town. But Erica Slaughter is just such an exciting character where she is just ballsy and gothy and, and you know, not exactly part of youth culture, but still trying to take care of this. And I absolutely loved this. Um, apparently, there's even more volumes and apparently they've done a spinoff comic as well. That's more about what they call the House of Slaughter, which is some of the other monster hunters. Hmm. And so this is just a really cool world. I um, am not too sure if this is adult or teens. And I don't really care. It's brutal. So I was going to say that it's more adult. But when I started looking it up, it was very much, and especially coming from Boom, it was structured as a teen comic. Hmm. Um, but that said, it's brutal as shit. Really good characters, too. And so that story is still going. Of that story one. is still going. This one is ongoing. So I only read up through volume three and apparently there's another one after this. And that's only after they get put in volumes. Um, usually the comics are like 22 pages mm. each. And then after you get six of those, they'll push them into a volume. Usually there's some flexibility in that. Um, and so, yeah, this has been going on for a while and I'm excited to see where it goes. And when I get back to LA, I'm going to pick up the other volumes that I've missed so far. Cool. And that is there's something killing the children. Thank God for that. <laughs> um, uh, no, not actually. Us, course, you know. you <laughs> um, my next one is, uh, so, you know, as we're getting to the end of the year, I'm trying to, I've been keeping a, a letterbox list of every horror film of the year, the new horror film. Uh, so I can kind of, you know, start thinking about top 10 or whatnot. And one that had come up on quite a few lists that I remember when it came out, I missed. It's called My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To, which is just yes! a great title uh, by a guy called Jonathan Qu- Quertas. Um, and I think it's his first feature. And so that always makes me super interested. Uh, actually, as soon as I watched this, I then looked up his shorts to see kind of mm-hmm. what he had made right before to get this made. And there's a really good short on Vimeo called Heart and the Stag that's fucking dark. It is a woman with a trailer who has abducted a boy and you can maybe see some feet hanging from the other room of her trailer, but you don't know what it means. And she is basically going to torture the guy and you don't know why. And it's only 10 minutes and it actually has a real emotional climax by the end where it all kind of pays off the brutality that of the start. And is re- so I instantly go, okay, this is an extreme film that, and, and my heart can't beat has a, um, not necessarily extreme, but definitely a hard realist tone to it. Um, it's you know, it's hard to say I enjoyed it. I, I don't know if that's the how I'd put it. It's um, it stars Patrick Fugit, who is from Almost Famous. You know, the young boy who was very mm-hmm. big deal, but also Dead Birds, which we both love. Uh, he's I love really Dead good. Birds, yeah, he's really good in this. Owen Campbell, who's one of the guys from Super Dark Times, which I also like, and an actress I wasn't familiar with, Ingrid Sophie Scram. It's three three siblings in a house. 
uh, one brother, uh, one sister, and then the younger brother played the Super Dark Times guy who basically has a mysterious illness that is never uh, verbalized what's wrong with him. He's very weak all the time. But the other two siblings go out and abduct homeless people or other people and cut their throats on the dinner table and then get the blood and serve it to their younger sibling. And it's all treated very realistically to the point, you know, it's just there's there's really nothing nothing at all supernatural i mean even the character who has this blood issue it's never it's never said that the character is a vampire and you never see teeth and there's none of that so it's you know it keeps it in that uh, uh world it's a it's almost a little too uh, and i like bleak it's it's almost a little too uh one note stuck in that that universe which is i'm sure the purpose of the film and so it's effective but not necessarily enjoyable <laughs> um it's a pretty dark world to be stuck in for an hour and a half but i do think it's good like i think it's a good solid movie definitely a good first film to show you can like you know what the performances are very real and the world feels completely uh, grounded but but it was yeah it was interesting it definitely i think i liked the short maybe more because to get something a dose that dark maybe is easier in a 10 minute you know version um but i do recommend that people check it out when they're getting to their um best of life. patrick fugit as the main brother who's out there trying to get it and then having realizing what they're doing maybe is not right or, or worth it and that maybe they they should stop this because they're just doing it to keep there's no parents in the picture it's you never really leave these three characters um you meet a couple side characters so it's pretty dark in in that way um but you know i i, I always kind of dig those films i had students who loved this yeah. um and I've seen i was it i kind of list. some lists put it I, at the very top I did not watch it because I read the titling of it and, or the the log line and was immediately like, whoa, that sounds heavy. Yeah, um, my gut would be less your kind of thing than mine, actually. Like, yeah. I would I would guess. But you never know. You know, like, you you would respect it. You would think it was cool. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, so good to see. It'll be interesting to see what that filmmaker does next. So um, we're going to take a very sharp left turn and um, then I'm going to beat you over the head with this one. Cool. Um, So a couple of weeks ago, Elric sent me a film um, that was hard to find um, that he had thought that I might want to see called The Haunted Sea. Okay, now we can pause, pause all of the things you're saying. Uh, (laughs) I didn't think you would like, I just, you are a a aquatic horror completist. (laughs) And I stumbled upon a film that I have no idea what the quality of said film is, but I knew you hadn't seen it. And that's why I should. What a caring friend does. Uh, not, and, not somebody trying to ruin your day with a bad movie. No, no, it didn't ruin my day. It was actually very amusing. Okay. Um, so, no, I had not seen The Haunted Sea. And I was deeply intrigued because that title sounds like it should come from like 1955. Corman. Like there might be a Corman film with the same title, actually. So that's my question. And I needed to look this up and forgot to do it before the show. This is a Corman film. Hmm. And uh, it's 1997 Corman. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm fairly sure that that is a prior Corman film. Like, I feel I like that title has been used before. Look that up because I kept trying to remind myself to do that. Oh, yeah. It was the creature it. from the Haunted Sea. Is from okay. 61 by Corman, and this is called The Haunted Sea. From the Haunted Sea. So, yeah, so, he's pilfering his yeah. own stuff. Um, so I'm curious now if that 1961 film is a similar plot. So this one, um, we had, when you 
gave this to me. We had just been talking about, um, I can't remember her name now. Oh gosh. She was like 90s superstar. She was in all types of stuff. Yeah. Loved her. The, the sexy um, lady we were talking about. Yeah. Well, and then we were like, this is also starring a sexy lady from the nineties who appeared in a lot of stuff. Krista this one's Allen. starring Krista <laughs> Allen. Um, Krista Allen was, she definitely started out doing B stuff. She was in Feast, Final Destination, X-Files. I always associate her because her voice and her cadence it's very soft-spoken and sexy and deliberate. Like I can recognize her voice faster than I can recognize her um, just because she has this very kind of deliberate way of speaking. Um, it also stars a bunch of other 90 stars who, as soon as I watched it, I went, oh, that's the guy from that TV show. Oh, I recognize her from that movie. So it has other recognizable faces in it. This was a Roger Corman direct-to-DVD release from New Horizons Home Video. Um, and the concept is all of these people are on a, um, what I think is a cargo ship and they are sailing across the sea. They are somewhere around the Yucatan, Yucatan Peninsula. I think it was very vague about exactly where they are. Um, it is the, a, a two woman crew. There's all of these guys and two very sexy women on this crew who are both fighting to show these guys that they can do their stuff. Um, and they happen upon another ship, a massive cargo ship that is completely empty. And so suddenly they're like, holy shit, can we salvage this thing and like, like make like killer profit from it as well? So um, they send a whole bunch of people aboard the other ship to see what they can find. And what they find is that this completely empty, abandoned ship, which sounds pretty ghost shippy, especially considering that, you know, this was right around, nah, this would have predated ghost ship yeah. a couple of years. Um, but yeah, it's kind of ghost shippy. They board. They're like, oh my gosh, let's salvage this bad boy. And all of a sudden they start finding weird things. And the weirdest thing that they find is they find crates full of Aztec treasure from what they believe is Montezuma's temple. So if and you paused so, here, you would just have described the greatest movie ever. Like all of yeah. that sounds good. Sexy people on a ship, Montezuma treasure, treasure car, say no more. Salvage. Yeah, there we go. But what they discover then is a couple members of the crew believe that instead of just, you know, salvaging this and taking their share of it, they decide to steal pieces of the treasure and stash them on their own. And somehow by stealing pieces of the treasure, it evokes some type of curse and they turn into a giant lizard creature. And then they start attacking the giant lizard creature starts attacking the other people who are now stuck on that ship because somehow the other ship blew up. And I'm not even too sure of exactly how that went down, but just they're stuck on the ship now. And um, yeah, and there's a giant lizard guy. Um, it's Leviathan because it's got this weird transformation quality. It's the relic. Um, because you're dealing with these relics, there's elements of virus because they're trying to salvage the ship with no one on it. But somehow it's nowhere near as good as any of those films. Um, it is it is just it, it, I, I put virus into that mix. It is nowhere near as good as virus. Like that's it. Virus um, probably had a thousand times the budget. <laughs> that's that is true. Um, yeah, you can feel the shoestrings of this. The the lizard creature is very plasticky. Um, TV Guide gave this one out of five stars. 
criticizing. That's the first time you've, you've done a, a TV guide review. That's <laughs> well, I just like this is this is like straight off IMDb, but it was yeah. like criticizing the film for, and then it was um, hyphenated, like it was um, like bulleted dialogue, direction, overuse of stock footage, lack of scares, lack of imagination. Oh. But that said, somehow watching this in an airport with two kids who were like punching each other and just putting my headphones on and watching it was almost therapeutic. See? So um, I got you, boo. Somehow, I got you. <laughs> somehow this came right when I needed it and it was awful and I loved it. Um, and I will watch 90s um, sexy people pretending to be salvage dock workers on a ship recovering Montezuma's treasure turning into giant lizard monster people any day of the week. So thank you for that, Alred. That is the most anyone has talked about that movie probably ever. <laughs> I, probably, I, I have to assume there's never been that long airtime dedicated to that kind of movie. But hey, that's what we're the here for. The Haunted Sea. Well, now you'll have, have to watch fun. the Corman uh, directed uh, creature from The Haunted Sea. Um, I remember the original because I remember liking the creature a lot. I remember thinking yeah. that the creature was really cool in it. And I can't remember exactly what they looked like, but I remember thinking that the haunted sea creature was really cool. I, Not as much in this one. Yeah. Now I have to Google it to remind myself what the original haunted sea creature looked like. But um, yeah, I've All definitely right. seen the original at some point. I'm glad I helped you pass 80 minutes. Thank you. Yes. Um, my last film uh, on here is um, from the good folks at Yellow Vale. Uh, who are putting always putting out some good stuff, always putting out edgy stuff or stuff that's like, to me, pushing the envelope of what is horror and what is like art house. And I always appreciate that. Their new one that comes out, I think in a couple weeks, is called Knocking, uh, directed by Frida Kampf. It is, um, uh, I believe, German. Uh, and it is a woman is uh, let out of her, leaving her psychiatric ward at the very opening of the movie, where mm-hmm. she, it shows that she has suffered suffered some loss and and it never really shows you exactly what went down but it's this beautiful shot on a beach and she and her lover are on the beach and her uh, girlfriend or partner goes leaves her and goes off into the water and the camera stays on her and then people start reacting so something terrible happens to her but we know they kind of keep that a mystery which i appreciated actually throughout the film but whatever it is has obviously haunted her and and driven Mm -hmm. her to have a nervous breakdown so it's the day she's leaving there she is uh, checking into this apartment, kind of like the tenant, you know, uh, like Polanski's the tenant or something. And she uh, is slowly losing her marbles because she can at night when she's all alone, she hears knocking and it's very pronounced and it's above her. And she thinks that some one of her neighbors is keeping somebody captive or something like that. And she Ooh. every time she tries to tell somebody about it, they think she's crazy or she runs into somebody uh, who has an ulterior motive and you're not really sure what's really going on for the whole movie. So it's it's very minimal. I would say if I had a criticism, it's that it really does feel like a 10 page short story that's so good as a short story mm-hmm. that it's like a knockout and that somebody of course wants to then turn it into feature now that said it's only about 75 minutes long and i always think of when a movie is 75 or 80 minutes that's never a bad thing because often it's like no that's the exact right amount for that story of anything else would be overstaying the welcome and so it does that her performance is great it's definitely the high point is the camera never leaves this woman so you're really stuck in what is her grappling with is she crazy or is she not 
And uh, I would say where, where it wraps up is pretty, it's pretty interesting. And there's some, you know, some really good sequences. I think, again, it's one, kind of like my heart can't beat. It will appeal to a certain type of horror fan and not another. So it, it's one of those things that's really intense, very real, but it, it lacks some of those um, maybe more magical qualities that some people, you know, want, the entertainment quality. Uh, I thought it was interesting. But again, it could have also been a 20-minute short and it would have won all the short film awards somewhere you know because it just has that structure more of a short Mm -hmm. um so you know i thought it was interesting so i think for people looking for a great strong performance uh you know i think that will appeal to some people too so that's knocking it might be coming to shutter i'm not sure but it's a couple weeks away from being out everywhere nice okay are you headed to beyond fest are you seeing anything there so yeah so by the time we talk next i will definitely see well i'll definitely be seeing i believe um the French film by the Raw director that won Khan, Titan. Yeah. That's coming out anywhere, like in normal theaters, mm-hmm. like in a couple of days. So you could even see it probably on the East Coast even. Um, but I am excited. Can here on the East Coast? I think even yeah. on the East Coast. Actually, it's playing at the Draft House. Yeah. Here, so okay. I was going to go see, see it. it. Yeah, see it. And then we can talk about it. Um, but I am always excited because I haven't seen even the trailer to that. I've been just curious because I know it's, I think it's body horror. So um, I would think so because as we were doing our prep for the body horror episode, everybody kept asking us if we were going to include it. And we were both like, guys, it's not really yeah, that. No. And I want to see that on a big screen. I didn't want to watch yeah. that at home. And then I am definitely seeing Halloween Kills uh, on Friday because uh, that's the kind of movie, even though it's coming out on VOD the same time more, or less mm-hmm. i just the movies like that i can only uh, only really enjoy being in a big setting and having like that's going to be the perfect way for me to see that particular film um and so i'm you know curious but then, then i'll and then i'll be in um new york for a few days and see we'll see what i might fit in a couple things but i'm mostly working so by the time we are on air together a couple weeks from now maybe there'll be a few more cool things Spotted. I will be uh, night beasting of this course, Friday yeah. evening. And uh, yeah, then Saturday, I promised my kids I would take them to see uh, Adam's Family 2. Um, Was that Which out? we saw together. Yeah, oh, you can't watch weekend. it without me, my kids. I know. <laughs> I know. We had taken all of our kids together to see yeah. the first one. I will see if they want to wait a weekend. No, I mean, I didn't, honestly, I didn't even know that was coming out. <laughs> my kids are super excited about this one because in it, the Adam's Family gets an RV. Oh. And it's about them like touring the country. Okay. And so my kids are just like, the Adams family bought an RV because that's, that's like our jam. Um, so, yeah. I got one last plug that uh, because uh, it will probably appear into my best of at the end of the year. But I got to say the most knockout thing I've experienced, which like you is not quite a movie this year, uh, probably next to Midnight Mass is Brett Easton Ellis's. Uh, I've mentioned it in brief when I was about halfway through, but he just wrapped it up. It took one year. So it was one year of episodes on his podcast. Exactly. Uh, and it, and it's called the shards. Um, it will eventually probably be a book, but it has been, he reads for about, um, I think about 40 minutes at the start of each one of these podcasts. That's Patreon only. And it's just completely hypnotic. And if I believe him, I mean, he, he posits it's all as a true story about when he was uh, 18 in his last year of high school and there is a serial killer uh, picking some people off and it and a cult in the back. There's all the stuff happening in the background of the story of what they're all going through with kind of like, like less than zero type story. And it's just the writing is so evocative. And then afterwards, he'll just talk about, you know, what his state of mind was and why he buried the story for 20 years because he couldn't deal with it. And now the pandemic triggered him to write it. It is so good. It is worth somebody. And it's better now that it's all up because I actually didn't like once I caught up. 
the last few weeks, I hated waiting every two weeks for the next installment. It was kind of not a good way to listen. So if you're interested, and I'm not a book listener guy, as you know, I, this is probably the first time I've ever listened to uh, an audio book that hasn't even been um, published, but it's, man, it's good. It is such good writing and so evocative and um, just kind of disturbing. Um, the best thing he's done since American Psycho, for sure, in my opinion. Wow. Um, I know Lunar Park has, has some big fans too. But yeah, no, me and Ben Collins, who was on for the Night House a few weeks, he was the other person mm-hmm. who I knew who was listening to it at the same time. And we would we would be writing back and forth like, this cannot be true. Like, this part can't be true. But, you know, he's still claiming all of it's real. So we'll see. Um, wow. So that's called The Shards. Uh, look out for that if you want to hear it that way. Or at some point, it will come out maybe as a book. Excellent. Okay, well, let's bring on our guests from Brand New Cherry Flavor. And we are so excited to be bringing on our next guest. Um, Nikki Antosca has been with us several times before in several different incarnations of podcasts, Um, but we are so thrilled to have him back along with Lenore Zion, showrunners from the amazing new Netflix show, Brand New Cherry Flavor. Thank you guys so much for being with us here tonight. Um, Y'all, that was weird. I loved it. (laughs) Thank you. That was weird? It wasn't that weird. (laughs) Brand New Cherry Flavor? What are you talking about? No, no, it's totally, it's totally. So, how did you first find? Um, it's based on a book, correct? It is. So, how did you first find the the source material? Um, I uh, came across it because I read some of the author Todd Grimson's short stories online. Um, he was he was writing under a pseudonym, um, and I struck up an email correspondence with him. Found out about the books. Uh, I say books because he's he's got a couple. There's brand new tray flavor. There's also stainless. Uh, I read brand new tray flavor, not knowing anything about it, and was just really struck by it. the The book has this um, very strange energy. It's a kind of uh, chaotic, demonic, weird energy, and it stuck with me. Years later, um, when I was here, Lenore and I were working on Channel Zero, and um, and and I gave her the book, and then, yeah, I mean, Lenore, what, <laughs> what happened <laughs> yeah. then? I mean, so- uh, well, then I read it, and I was like, "This book is insane. I, I think we should definitely make a show out of it." And then we started doing that. How similar is the show to the book itself? Like, is it still kind of a fever dream? The book feels like a fever dream, yeah. Um, but I, I would say. You know, we we tried to sort of stay true to the spirit of the book more than uh, kind of write the show version of that, absolutely everything that happened in the in the actual novel. Um, but you know, everything that we wrote was definitely inspired by Todd's absolutely bizarre and you know unrestrained creativity. Does it have many strands of the pop culture through the book as as the show did? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it does. They're not all exactly the same, but part of what, um, you know, shaped the book, Todd likes to say, is that he watched hundreds and hundreds of horror movies um, and he tried to incorporate all of his favorite deaths into the into the book. Um, and like any any inventive way that he saw, you know, uh you know, a kill happened. He tried to put it in the book, but the book doesn't really, it doesn't read like a 
you know, novelized slasher or like a, it, it doesn't even really read like a horror movie. Like it's it's kind of like a Brett Easton Ellis, like by way and like a little like, uh, you know, play it as it lays, like energy mm. combined with Clive Barker and combined with David Lynch. And it's just like this this wild hybrid of of styles and influences. Um, so that that sense of um of it being kind of like a bunch of uh stuff in a in a blender um was inspired by the the same feeling in the book even if it's some of the difference some different stuff in the blender like there's no tadpoles in the blender in in the book but that was was a great scene by the way the tadpoles in the blender i didn't see that one coming (laughs) till i was like oh okay (laughs) i mean i know a lot of people probably don't know exactly including us exactly what showrunners do obviously in terms of the vision of a show um in the way that maybe a director is the vision of a movie Obviously, there's. I, I would be curious to hear a little bit of th- that with us, especially with the idea of tone management, because when I think of the tone of this one compared to Channel Zero, I feel like the tone of Channel Zero, even when it went crazy, when some of the some of the seasons went crazier than others, right? I always felt like the tone was fairly this one kind of almost one similar consistent tone. And this, what I loved about it was the, it felt like all those seasons in one show <laughs> kind of yeah. mishmash together, but somehow it works. And so I, when I say tonal management, I'm like imagining different directors and different people coming into this series, doing different episodes. How does, how did it, the story and through lines stay so consistent? So I guess part of that is like, what is the role that you guys uh, do to uh, ensure that, I guess? I mean, that, that kind of is the role, you know, so yeah. set, setting that tone in the, uh, in the writer's room. And like, I, I mean, I remember being on the set of channel zero and uh, I think the first season um, and talking to Lenore on the phone from the house that, you know, Fiona Shaw's character lives in and talking about like what we loved about the novel, brand new tray flavor and how it could be um, visualized, how, how it could be, I don't know, um, distilled because there's so much um so much stuff and what we talked about you know one of the many things we talked about was was the tone how do we get that feeling how do we get that that vibe of like a a los angeles that isn't quite a place that you know like it's an unfamiliar world but when you're once you're immersed in it it feels knowable Right. Like it feels mm-hmm. like there's there's all sorts of unseen stuff happening around the edges. Um, and so that's what we tried to maintain. And obviously you have to have continuity in the voices of the directors um, and Celiana Cardenas and Troy Hansen. Celiana is the DP. Troy is the, the production designer. Um, they're a big part of maintaining that consistency of tone. And then you get in the editing room. And uh, a global pandemic happens and it helps you out because you have a lot more time to craft the tone. And, and our editor, Greg O'Brien, is, uh, you know, our, our, our main producing editor, um, was, uh, was a huge part of that, too. So did you actually produce and shoot this during the pandemic? Some of it, yeah. Um, most of it, most of it, we did before the pandemic. But we, I think, we had to shut down in uh, in Vancouver. We were shooting most everything. What, like one or two days before everything shut down? Is that right, Nick? Yeah, we 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 had we always had a couple of weeks left to shoot in LA, right? Because mm-hmm. the, I mean, the show takes place in LA, so we we're going to do all our exteriors in LA. Um, and what that meant was 
we were like a day or two from finishing our, our Vancouver stuff. Um, and then we had to shut down and get on a plane and fly back. And because the, all the LA stuff was spread out through the episodes, there were no finished episodes. So the, mm. the show was like Swiss cheese. We had, we had all this stuff. And then there were like big gaps in it, like important stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the scene where Lou puts his hand on Lisa's leg or where they, they're out on the, like the overlook looking out over LA, like smoking in the first episode, all that stuff wasn't done. These like key scenes. So we had like, 80 to 85 percent of the show and we were able to just go over it and over it and um with greg and curtis and ken the other two editors and really kind of hone in on the tone and then in november we were finally able to get back up and, and shoot the rest of it safely so we shot for about two and a half weeks in la like bits from every every different episode. Um, and then you're sort of like, it's like getting the, the gang back together a little bit. And you're like, what, what were we thinking when we shot that other thing? But we knew so much more because we'd had mm-hmm. so much time to to craft the tone. So that was, um, you know, there were, there were many, many downsides to uh, having a show shut down production, but that was actually helpful because we had time to like find the show and, and craft the show in a way that, we wouldn't have otherwise. And then of course we shot new stuff and then we went back and re-edited the old stuff. Cause it's like, Oh, this pace or tone changes a little bit, but um, yeah, I forgot what your question was, but uh. it was just shooting <laughs> during the pandemic. And what was it like doing most of your post-production online as well? Um, well, we did, we didn't do all of it on online. Some, some of it was online, but basically I think they had to fire or not fire, but send home, everybody except for our editor and mm-hmm. his assistant editor um and me and nick and so the whole place was kind of empty and we had to nick and i were in one room that was that had the had what our editor was working on on a television and in the next room over was our editor we couldn't be in the same room mm-hmm. so it it was <laughs> there was a lot of weird um you know shifting yeah. around and, and locational challenges and we did the we did the remote stuff a little bit and then it like we were just like we got to be in the same building because we we have such a kind of hands-on thing with with greg mm-hmm. it was like it was, it was actually more efficient to be sitting there and like yelling back and forth from from room <laughs> to room like um and yeah it was it was just a, a very slow weird kind of cobbled together process that actually for some interesting fruit because um, because I don't think we would have been able to do exactly what we wanted to do and as meticulously as we wanted to do it had we been under the, the original schedule. So, you know, it, it's like, you know, you always want more time, um, not because of uh, a pandemic, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would be interested, is the original novel set in the 90s as well? It is, yes. Yeah. I would love to hear you guys talk about how um, it simultaneously feels 90s, but still very contemporary. Like I, at any given point, I could say, oh, that lipstick shade she's wearing is so 1993. Um, but at the same time, like it, it still had this contemporary feel to it. So how did you guys go about kind of embodying the 90s? Well, just as an example to what you just said, you know, when we talked to our um, 
costume designer, Ariana Priest, early on, she was like, it's interesting because a lot of the style is coming back now. You know, there's mm-hmm. stuff that you see from photos of the early 90s that like uh, Bella Hadid is like wearing walking down the street today. So there's something fortunate about that. Like there's a, there's a cyclical, cyclical nature of fashion and design. And, and so um, some things felt modern that, um, that really were period. And another, you know, uh, another thing that happened was we realized we're going to have to shoot a chunk of this in Vancouver. Um, Mm -hmm. and we're, uh, the budget is quite low. Uh, and so we're, it's not going to be a documentary of like the nineties, right? Like it's going to be a, a dream or a nightmare of the nineties, right? Like that's why it says early nineties at the beginning, not 1990, sort of like a, uh, a, a nightmare that you have, like um, where you're back yeah. around that time. It's also the indie film boom, right? Yeah, that has will never exist in the same way. Where these indie filmmakers could make, you know, Aronofsky could make Pie and then make yeah. a giant studio film next. And so I think that was what captured it. Even if, you, if another production detail was there, that was such a strong essence of what you guys did. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I. I think uh, I think a lot of what made it feel sort of simultaneously contemporary um, really was the fact that it existed, you know, a few standard deviations away from reality. So yeah. there there were these like, you know, very 90s things that existed in the story and in the, you know, in the visual landscape of the story. But so much of it just was made to feel unreal and bizarre because that's that's the world Lisa was working in. Totally. Yeah, and it it even the problems that she was facing still felt very contemporary today. Like I was watching it, saying, "God, it's been thirty years. I wish these were no longer issues that we're still constantly <laughs> facing." But yeah. Well, one question that that comes up early on is, um, why don't you set the sh- why don't you just modernize the show and set it in twenty twenty or twenty twenty one? And um, they asked us that right at the beginning, and immediately Lenore said, "Well, because." then if you're a filmmaker, you just take your phone and shoot a movie. Like it has to be, she's coming to LA. She's, you know, she, she needs the permission. She needs the resources. Um, so it's just a different story. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stylistic influences that you would have maybe films or art that you maybe shared with the cinematographer and directors up front? Uh, because obviously there's two different strands. You have the movie we're watching, the point of view of uh, Rosa's character, Lisa Nova, but then we also have her filmmaking style where I saw, you know, to me it looked a little bit like a Cindy Sherman, uh, her, her photography mixed with meshes of the afternoon or something. You yeah, know, there was some uh, Maya Darren Maya in there Darren too. Purple. But it's all stuff we love and, and it, there's something exciting visually about this whole piece because there's so many different influences, but I wonder what you guys used just to kind of translate to get everyone on the wavelength. Mm-hmm. Well, when we, when we started working on this in, you know, just the two of us, it, we, we started talking about it kind of as like um, true romance during the day and lost highway at night. Nice. Um, so there was, that was sort of, I guess the starting point. Um those are yeah, and they're good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, the Lost Highway and um, Mulholland Drive and Cronenberg references are the ones that are you know most obvious. And of course, we we talked about that stuff. But uh, one thing that uh, you know nobody has really commented on is there's a, there's a lot of um, 
did like Robert Richardson cinematography uh, and Natural Born Killers was a, a specific visual influence, especially in the kind of like chaotic energy of it. Mm. Um, we also, we looked at uh, Perdita Durango. Uh, oh, shit. And, uh, <laughs> I love that movie so much and nobody has seen it. I'm so glad Severn just did our release of it. Um, that's one that like, I, I recommend it sparingly because it's kind of a weird um you have to have a certain sensibility to like it movie. Um, but it's one I've always really appreciated. So I'm glad to hear that come up. It's, it's a gnarly movie. It's, it's yeah. kind of nasty. Like, um, but it, but it has that same, like the uh, almost demonic energy where you're like, mm-hmm. what, where did this come from? How did they, how did they make this? Like that you, that we both wanted Lisa to have as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and that we wanted the, the show itself to have a certain feral, feeling like oh my god are they really doing this um and uh i mean pretty durango opens with like her lying in the bed with a big cat over her like it's a yep. very very specific um and uh daughters of darkness was mm-hmm. was one i mean it's actually pe- playing on the tv in in the in the show yeah. um that character's you know outfits i think were a little bit of an inspiration for boro you know the stuff that Catherine keener wears mm-hmm. um there's some others we, we watched jackie brown as just like a mm-hmm. you know a, an la movie um I, I i don't know if you could really trace that influence onto the screen but uh yeah i mean there's a lot a lot of a lot of old you know horror movies and and stuff like that and and for Boro specifically, photos of um, uh, of rock stars, you know, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, and she's not a rock star, but Jane Fonda. That makes so much sense now. Oh my gosh, yeah. And what about for her films, the actual film she made? Because because you're talking about dangerous energy or like a cursed mm-hmm. object. I kept another thing I think about is like if the director of Bogotan had never made another movie like Shadow. Yep, we, yeah, we would have. We would have all thought this was some sort of cursed thing. That this yeah. it felt like yeah. a found object. That movie feels so dangerous and dark and you know otherworldly. So, I, and I think her film kind of has that energy because it has this horrific kind of accident that happens inside mm-hmm. it, which is to me that's one of the most hypnotic sequences. The way you guys slowly build up to the what happened within the film itself, I think that's that's a great um, dramatic tension. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're dead on about that. I mean, we did mention Begotten um, oh. when talking about that, and um, and also some early like Lars von Trier. Like the the titles of Lisa's movie are specifically like some uh, some of the early Lars von Trier stuff. Yeah, interesting. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you guys kind of compose your nightmare logic um, visually on screen and kind of how you stylistically, uh, you know, kind of plan it. How does it go from page to pre-production to actual execution on screen? Because that is what sticks with me from Channel Zero. And in this one, you stole my nightmare. Like my reoccurring nightmare since I was um, since I lived in New York City for like 10 years now is that a door to another room appears somewhere in my room out of nowhere. Um, <laughs> and so as soon as that trap door appeared on the floor, I was like, fuck, that's my nightmare. Um, so, yeah, and I've had that for, for a decade now. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of plan out the nightmare logic or even vomiting a kitten? Like, how do you plan out what that is going to visually look like? And how you ground it. Sorry to jump in, <laughs> the but that, that's, I've seen a lot of good filmmakers uh, do nightmare logic that that you end up feeling nothing. It takes you yeah. out of the movie. It's visually arresting, and then 
it's hard to get back into the movie after. And this actually does it in a way where you're still grounded somehow when you come back and you still believe they're real people. And I think that there's something that that is not the easiest trick to pull off. Lynch is obviously the you know, yeah. example there. Hmm. What well, I'm trying to figure out which part of that to answer. <laughs> I know there was a lot there. <laughs> um, the the I, I think one of the primary elements of this of the nightmare logic that we that we used um, was that everything would be kind of accepted by the characters. Like uh, there'd be a casual acceptance of the bizarre. There's never any like you know sense of sense of what is this stuff doesn't exist in reality what's going on why did i vomit a kitten why are there zombies you know anything like that it's just i vomited a kitten and there are zombies so moving on what's next there is there is some truth to that right like there is some like authenticity to that in the sense that like we talk in the writer's room like what what you know if if you wanted to put a curse on someone and you went to your friend or say your friend came to you and said like I really hate this guy and I want to put a curse on him. You wouldn't be like, this is crazy. You'd be like, that's kind of fun. That's interesting. Like, uh, okay. Like, I don't, I don't know if you're serious, but like, I, there's, there's just a certain, we have an amazing capacity to adapt to strange and even unthinkable things happening in our lives. And uh, the pandemic is an example of that, right? Like we, uh, we, you know, the way we walk around the streets now and, and go out to restaurants is like a, it's a JG Ballard novel come to life. Mm-hmm. And to think, you know, two years ago of what life would look like now, it's just absolutely insane. And so I, I think there's some honesty in like the way that the, the characters sort of adapt very quickly to, to some of this stuff. I mean, yes, it's heightened of course, but um, and in, in terms of visualizing it, you know, we, we we want to kind of um, we want it to be a little bit heightened, like 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 Lenore says, like a couple standard deviations away from reality, right? And mm-hmm. and so it feels strange yet somehow relatable, and it feels like uh, if you were to you know walk out of the Lisa's apartment building and down the street, like there, there's a, there's a whole world out there, right? Like there's, um, uh, this world continues and, and its rules continue. And, um, the way to make, to visualize that is just talk a lot with everybody involved beforehand. So everybody is speaking the same language. And so everybody's like willing to, take a leap of faith with you because like you're telling it, if you're dramatizing a true story or a kind of predictable story, then, then everybody sort of understands the rules. And when you're, when you're creating a world that's off like this, people really have to have like a lot of faith in you and you have to have a lot of faith in them um, that it's going to come together and not be like totally ridiculous. I mean, I, I remember one of the actors on a season of channel zero saying like toward the end like you know that it's like well we we really had fun on this and we we're just wondering like how, how is this going to cut together like mm-hmm. is this gonna like is this gonna work you know and and when you're making something so strange you all have to just have that like like um taking we're taking this journey together nice it seems like dark humor might have helped too 
<laughs> I feel mm-hmm. like it, it just yes. had more dark humor than I thought the Channel Zero Zero Seasons did, and I think that helps. That for me helped ground it too, because some of these characters can make a, a flippant joke or a comment. I thought Rosa Salazar particularly was able to sell things with some sort of dark humor that suddenly would might have otherwise felt like an unrealistic beat. Suddenly it's like, nope, she's going with it, you know? And I think Rib that's- cage vagina. <laughs> yeah, rib cage vagina. Rib cage yeah. vagina. Um, where I was just we like- We called oh, it the orifice. The orifice. <laughs> that was ultimate Cronenberg right there. That was yeah. just beautiful. But then when other things started happening, I mean, the kitten was one thing, but then when it kept going, I was like- uh, well, you can't, it's like a Chekhov's gun. You can't have it there without, okay, let's just do this. So yeah, that was just a beautiful scene without revealing too much. That was in episode four. You also get there. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about working with the cats because um, even when we talked to Kevin Close and Dennis Widmeyer about working with the cats from Pet Cemetery, like trained cats are always a myth to me because um, cats are just feral beasts that we occasionally let live in our houses. Um, so how was it working with all the trained cats on set? I, I think I, I'm not sure that cats can ever really be trained. I think you're right about that. But they're reliably interested in food. So if you put <laughs> something that they want to eat on something that you want them to put their face on, that works. And uh, and, you know, the, generally speaking, if, if you find like a good natured cat that isn't afraid of people, that cat will probably wander around set when you're shooting and not cause any problems and just look like a good cat in the background. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, it's worth saying, you say, all, you know, all the trained cats there, there actually aren't that many cats on screen in the show. There's because there's, there's, um, as the, you know, the main cat, uh, and then there's a lot of puppet cats and, um, those cats, you know, they're, they're the freshly birthed ones. And mm-hmm. we knew that they had a, they had a look, you know, very, almost fetal. Um, and the thing you can't, of course, for good reason, you can't put a, a very young cat on mm-hmm. screen, right? They have to be like, you know, a certain uh, number of weeks old. And, and so, you know, other shows or movies sometimes solve this problem. And when they need to show new, newborn kittens by CGIing them, um, which was, obviously the first option that was proposed and it's just like it it, it wouldn't it wasn't gonna look good um yeah. it, it was just gonna it wasn't gonna have the same effect you know we needed our weird like gross version of baby yoda for for the little glimpses of these these like you know afterbirth covered kittens and so you know we made them in puppets and and um we just felt they're not on screen for very long but mm-hmm. we just felt they had a little bit of personality um yeah it's also you know the the fact that they were puppets i think helped sell that weird reality that you had to accept you know right. if, if if that had been a cgi kitten everybody can identify cgi it's not you know even when it's really good you can tell and if she vomits up something that you know somewhere in your brain in the back of your head you know is a fake thing that didn't actually fall down on the ground there i think that you can i, I think it takes you out of it where did the puke kitten come from? Because well, I, I heard that wasn't from the book. So that, that strikes me as which one of you maniacs <laughs> had that on the mind? <laughs> well, that Lenore puked, puked the kitten. <laughs> from, came from you. Yes, I actually do this in real life. Uh, oh, good. So. No, no, That's how you got the news. But, but um, 
it was uh it was it was Lenore's idea we, like originally we were I remember we were um starting to plot out the show right like starting to prepare the pitch and we were just thinking about like the the transactional nature of Lisa and Boro's relationship and what mm-hmm. was how we were going to dramatize that and what what would what would feel different and strange and what was the pound of flesh um and you know when Lenore just said, "Well, what if she makes you throw up kittens?" Uh, you you know the right idea when you hear it. So the book didn't have an equivalent of that, like a, no, it, no it it transit. Did. Okay, it, it, it kind of did because it, it the idea comes from the book. You know, there there's the this fantastic backstory with the white jaguar in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all all this. I don't want to ruin the book, but it's yeah. in that it's in the book, and so we were you know we were trying to figure out how we could convey this sort of Jaguar spirit, this Jaguar energy inside Lisa and what it is exactly that Boro would want from her in, you know, in return for cursing Lou. And it would probably be some of that, some of that magic, some of that Mm. spirit. Yeah. That opened one of the most interesting things about, and I, I feel like the cool thing about doing this now, after a few weeks of it being out is I feel like a lot of horror fans who are going to love this still haven't, figured it out what that is that it's horror that it's you know going to be their bag yet because i think just you know marketing is such a funny thing nowadays and especially with things that are put on netflix but for me the body horror comes easy that's really easy Mm -hmm. to identify the thing that makes this really i think um topical and exciting right now is that it's a folk horror show but set in an urban environment it's folk horror done in urban los angeles and even even the world you craft um for the Catherine keener is a is a return to folk roots, right? Uh, this, this, like, it's nature and uh, witchcraft and dark. And so, so a, uh, a, we've just been talking quite a lot about folk horror on this show in the last few weeks, and there's a great new documentary on folk horror. But it was also just wondering how much um, research were you, did you guys have to do outside of uh, the book for to know to kind of figure out what you wanted the history of the magic of the spells of the of those kind of roots just for your own sake. How, how much of interest uh, did you guys take in that? We read a lot of books, but we were very careful that we weren't taking uh, a specific mythology, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just as this is a sort of nightmare of what LA is um, and what the 90s are, it's a nightmare of, of folk mythology. Mm-hmm. And and Todd did a similar thing in the book. You know, it, it's interesting, actually, Todd has, he told me that he has never been to LA, right? Like he, wow. he like it's like Kafka writing about America. Um, It's just like an imagined, you know, a a fever dream of it. That's very very true. Yeah. I've met Boro at a party before. Like, I swear to God, like one of my first LA parties, she was like there hanging out. I think she offered me shrooms. It was a whole thing. Um, So no, that wasn't just, that wasn't just Catherine Keener. It may have just been Catherine Keener. I'm not sure. (laughs) They probably weren't even shrooms. They were found in a yard on the way there, but yeah. Um, like it definitely, there were parts of it that felt so LA, even just like the, I live in Boyle Heights. I mean, like it just, it felt like the neighborhoods. It seemed to kind of embody just LA being this spread out beast where each one of the neighborhoods has a different personality, a different flavor. And then it's all about driving in between them. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It was, it was such a pleasure and such a relief to finally shoot in LA, even under the conditions that we eventually had to, because the show, it has so much LA flavor. And uh, 
we had been like living in the idea bubble of LA in rainy Vancouver for, for months. Um, and and snowy. The, it snowed. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, and the show lives, you know, this is that, that flavor like permeates the indoor scenes and everything. And, and, um, yeah, that was actually the first time I ever shot in LA. Wow. Oh, that's, oh, that's right. You used cool. to, used to shoot channel zero where Guy Madden lives, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that's Winnipeg. the one thing about it. I always remember is Guy Madden. Yeah. His, Wait, where was channel Winnipeg. zero shot? Oh, his Winnipeg. Okay. Yeah. That's where yeah. we make Hallmark Wait. films. Yeah. Guy, <laughs> Guy worked on, uh, no end house. He worked on season two. Um, oh. yeah, no, I mean, for people who haven't seen his movie, my Winnipeg, it's, it's one of the greatest surreal do- personal documentaries I've ever seen. It's so fun. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah. So you guys mentioned um, something as a passing comment about 10 minutes ago, but it definitely um, perked my interest, the idea of the pitch. Because even when you were talking about how you'd kind of melded in the cat vomiting for the pitch of this, and it came at the pitch level. Um, But even thinking back at something like Perdita Durango, where I'm just like, I just want to have been in the room when they pitched this, because how the fuck did that ever get made? What was your pitch for this like? Like how, I mean, was it the standard television pitch where it's like, and this character, PowerPoint slide? Or, you know, how did you guys sell this? Was there any specific hook? I mean, uh. <laughs> what are you want to? I, so- I mean, I yeah, I think I think we tried to focus really in in the pitch. We tried to focus on the, the relatable human story that was buried beneath the weirdness. You know, that's that's a pretty important part of a show. You have to understand it on some level to feel connected to it. So I, you know, we we walked through a lot of Lisa's character and mm-hmm. why she was the way she was and who she is now and what she's about to become, you know, I think we more focused on that than focused on specific bizarreties that we were going to try to get Netflix to let us do later. And that story seems very relevant to now. So even though it's set in the nineties, that has an element of me too. And a lot of just like a lot of anger is being channeled through that character, which I think to get her movie back and and reclaim her vision, which is really strong. It's interesting you say that because we had we originally developed this in early 2017. Like that's when we were we were brainstorming. That's when we were you know plotting it out. We took out the pitch. Like we went out to pitch it to people as Me Too was breaking. It, it was fall of 2017. So it was like we did not plan that, and <laughs> we were like, well, this is either not going to sell or a lot of people are going to want it. And actually, we were totally wrong. Um, everybody passed on it except for Netflix, which just kind of barely was like, "All right, this is weird and cool. We'll, we'll yeah, let's take a shot at it." Um, and then it, you know, it was in development for for a year plus, so we didn't really get going until 2019. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I, the 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 pitch, like it is, it is a cool thing. I think you know, if you're an executive you're seeing a hearing and seeing a ton of pitches. You hear the mm-hmm. same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And it's not that often you hear like, and then at the end she vomits up a kitten and like, oh, here's what that means. Um, so, you know, the weirdest probably worked against us in a lot of ways, but it helped us enough. It distinguished the, the, the pitch for Netflix. And we had a, we had a one or two other places say like, Hey, we love this we want to make this we just can't sell it to our bosses 
which is a thing you hear like <laughs> three lot. times a day. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we were trying to sell TV shows. How much does it help having, I mean, if, if, if with the more out there stuff, because this is an adaptation, how much does it help that there is a source material to point to? Because obviously Channel Zero was based on material, but not in any traditional kind of material, right? It's like Reddits and things. So uh, in, in this case, how much does that help with with suits and other people that you're pitching to, I guess? Mm. I think I think it helps a little. I mean, mm. Leonard, we we sent them the book, right? Like they read the book before they bought it. Uh, yeah, Netflix read the book. Not, I don't. Not everybody read the book, but they read the book before. Um, I think it helps. You know, it, it's sort of a, a bit of proof of concept. Yeah. You know, there was an audience for this once. There may be again. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the book it also the book has an odd history with Hollywood because obviously it's the Hollywood story. But my understanding don't don't you know hold me to this. I think I heard it from Todd, and I might be getting the story. I think that it was in development back in the nineties. Like I think Sigourney Weaver bought it or optioned wow. it or something to try and make it back then. Like as a producer, I'm not sure, but. Um, there, there was a there was a previous iteration that would have been a film in like the late nineties or something like that. But it's still so it's a different. Like if I was to read the book, I, I usually I won't read something if I've seen it already. I usually read it before I see something. But if I read this, I would have like a very different experience. You think, or in terms oh, of that definitely. story as well? Okay, definitely. And you should absolutely read the book. Okay. Fantastic. Cool. Book the book is three hundred some pages. Oh, we adapted okay. like some portion of the first sixty to eighty pages for it's. I mean, wow. it's an adaptation of the book the way that like there will be blood is an adaptation of uh, <laughs> oil. oil. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Okay. We 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 tried to keep like the spirit, the vibe, the energy, mm-hmm. and Lisa's character and her her drive. Hmm. Uh, but there's a lot of like specific stuff that's way different like i'll just give you a you know a, a teaser spoiler lou burke's wife in the book becomes like a major character and villain you know down the road wow. there's, there's, she she goes to brazil she spends a lot of there's tons of wild crazy stuff hmm. interesting wow okay. This is sounding kind of Perdita Durango, where it is like a big universe and we're just seeing a tiny little glimpse of it. So is there another iteration of this that we can hope what might come later? Almost certainly not. I mean, we, we, <laughs> we like when we were in the writer's room, we were like, that's when we were like, okay, I think, I think, I think this is like the, um, there will be blood kind of adaptation. Mm-hmm. Like we, yeah. we want to distill what we love from the book and put it into the, just because part of it is like the we we didn't think that we could do a literal adaptation justice the book is so strange you have to change continents multiple times this was we knew what the budget was going to be and from doing channel zero we knew you know what we had to work within and like how detrimental it can be to like try and do things that you're just not going to be able to do mm-hmm. um so so we tried to like put the images and ideas and we, we did the stuff that we wanted to do in the, in the first season. Fantastic. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I would love to hear like before we part, what you have been watching, like what were some of your highlights during the pandemic? Um, what has been awesome for you guys lately? 
I think the best show that I have seen for a long time is zero, zero, zero. I am obsessed with it. I want to watch it again for the first time. Is that on Amazon? Sad that I can't. Yeah, I got to think. I think I noticed it just recently for the first time and didn't know what it was. So, okay. It's so good. What is it? You have to tell us now because I have not even heard of this. It's it's a a, a view of the, I guess, the drug trade Hmm. from three different perspectives, uh, three different angles. And they all come together in really interesting stories. I don't want to ruin anything, yeah. so I'm not going to give you any more than that. But it's it's brilliant. And they make some really interesting choices that I don't think other people would have made that really make it stand out. Wow. Okay, I'm in. Yeah. Um, for me, it's uh, Losing Alice. The This is Israeli TV show that I, I think is now on Apple TV+. Plus. Um was a great, great, it's a great series. And it is, it's also a filmmaking theme series about a woman who, who's a director and um, she casts her husband in this movie and they get in this like psychosexual crazy thing with the screenwriter. Uh, and it's incredibly well-written, well-directed and it manages to get like really wild suspense out of like a locations meeting um, or like, you, you know, the tension of the scene will be like, wait, is she going to call cut? Is she, and it, like, it really works. It's really tense. And, and, wow. um, and, and yeah, it's psychologically. Uh, yeah. You that watch sounds it. awesome. So that is on Apple plus right now, losing Alice. Yeah. Okay. I'm so I'm now I'm hoping we see a resurgence of kind of movies and TV shows about movies, about the act of making movies, because that's something and even from a pitch level, like that's something that's difficult to pitch a movie about the movie industry or TV show about the movie industry, because it's always like, oh, this is too insider baseball is what you hear a lot. Um, So I'm but we saw a lot of those in the 90s. It was like the living in oblivion. And then we had a whole bunch of them. So with Catherine Keener. (laughs) With Catherine Keener. There we go. She's in there. Actually, I did um, want to ask about casting. Like, how did you guys find Rose and Catherine, and and how did you kind of build the cast out? Um, it was just so well done. We always felt like Catherine Keener was kind of a rock star, you know, and uh-huh. and we imagined Boro as as like this decadent, um, uh, dangerous rock star, and she just seemed like the perfect embodiment of that energy. So, so we went after her from from the beginning. And then, um, Rosa, we had seen in undone, um, uh, and, and loved her. And so we wanted to see her with a, a bunch of, uh, animation, like hiding her face. Um, and you know, she's just such an intense performer and, and like we asked her to do some pretty wild stuff in this show. And, and, uh, so rib cage yeah. vagina. Yeah. <laughs> Orifice. Orifice. Um, <laughs> And uh, Eric Lang, we had we had seen in Escape at Danamora, um, and the showrunner of that, Brett Johnson, told us like this guy's amazing. He's a chameleon; he can do anything. Um, and uh, you know, yeah one Jeff one Ford. of the things that oh sorry go no no go no no t- talk about Jeff uh jeff ward um who plays roy was uh he was in channel zero um i've worked with him a couple times love him and uh, we needed that kind of like 
vulnerable and slightly um slightly self-destructive vibe you know for for that character and and uh yeah it was it was a amazing cast mm-hmm. and with his award is one of my favorite moments <laughs> and with winning his award and what happens after i won't ruin but it was pretty damn funny so <laughs> yeah he's great in that scene <laughs> Uh, I loved um, Lou Dobbs with the Falcon. That is such an interesting character choice to begin with. But just when Lou, she walks Lou into Burke. the back. Lou Burke. Sorry. Lou Burke. Yeah. Did you say Lou Dobbs? Lou Dobbs, Lou Dobbs is a bit older. It's 11 o'clock here, guys. I'm sorry. It's 11 o'clock on the East Coast right now, so forgive me. Um, but yeah, Lou Burke sitting in the backyard with the Falcon on his arm when she walks out. Just having a Falcon in the movie to begin with is like baller move. Um, so that was just a beautiful character choice right there. And and he just looks so majestic with it. Yeah. We got to play with Maverick. those Falcons. Oh, wait. So those were actual like real Falcons on set too. Were, the living and, ones were. Oh my gosh. And you actually got to like, I, I'm so fascinated by them. You got to play with them. Yeah. Well, we got yeah. to hold them gently on our arms, you know, and, and hope that uh, they didn't, I don't know, like, Claw, claw your out. eyes. Um, yeah, I mean they're they're beautiful, beautiful, beautiful birds. Well, the most exciting thing, if we're going to wrap this up, the most exciting thing really is the fact that there's a reference to possession, and the reason that is so exciting. She says we're going to go full of Johnny on this next take. Uh, the reason that's so exciting is that uh, most of the people who watch it will not have a clue what that means. But now, in about a week, it's going to be playing everywhere across America for the next uh, month or so in a 4k restoration. So the world mm. will finally, cause it's never had a release in America. And so uh, this will be the first release in America. So people will actually get your reference in about six weeks. And I'm very excited for them. Film Twitter gets it of course from gifts. They love to show the subway scene, but you know, actual, uh, actual non uh, horror cinephiles and whatnot. will start to know that reference. So that's good news. I think. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a big deal. It's a, it's it's on um, the Metrograph in New York is the one actually putting it out. Like they they did the cleanup. They're going to release it across America. It's going to get a Blu-ray. The whole the whole shebang. So this very awesome. and I think it's relevant to. I mean, I'm this is my favorite movie, but it's relevant to your movie because it's about that movie when it came out in America was butchered to eighty minutes long, un, almost unwatchable. No one knew about it really for you know thirty years. And and it has a dark energy. It has a really dark mm-hmm. an energy that you can't quite pinpoint why you yep. like it and why it's off putting at the same time. <laughs> and so so you know, I, I think it's kind of cool that that's coming out right at the same time as yours. Yours is still available. So definitely, oh, man, I gotta go see yeah. that in the theater. Yeah, I'll be in LA yeah. probably uh, mid October. I think. That was actually the very first movie that Elric and I saw together, like right after I moved to L.A. It's been almost 10 years now. Um, I didn't really know anybody in town, so I asked a group of people who I just met to come see Possession with me um, in 35 millimeter at uh, Silent Cinema. And um, Elric and I saw it together there and we're, it, we just connected over it. So, yeah, it was I wonder if it because I was a Kiwi that I knew about like I because most Americans I met didn't know about it because Sam Neill's a nope. Kiwi. I wonder if it was just easier to see in New Zealand when I was I only so, started about 20, but I definitely had crossed it because I had it on VHS tape. But the VHS tape that I'd had in college was so dark, like I'd rented it yeah. from the video store I worked at. 
I'd rented it, but it was so dark. I never knew what the monster at the end looked like. It was just this shadowy, humpy thing. Might be better. Um, I mean, I don't know in 4K yeah. if we're meant to see that thing in 4K. Are you meant uh, to see the hump monster in 4K? The story, well, the knowing- story goes that the uh, the director did not design that creature, that Carlo Rimboldi designed it. He thought it was going to look like something else. He opened the crate after months of shipping, and he, they had to shoot it no matter what it looked like. And he was like, Jesus Christ, it's a giant penis monster. What the fuck am I going to do? And he had no clue that it was going to look that way, which is hard to imagine. because wasn't, Didn't Carlos Rimbaldi use a similar design in Cameron's closet? Like, wasn't it super kind of a similar thing? that might We're, we're outing Rimbaldi as a slacker here. I know. Anyway. I know. He has an Oscar for E.T. You know, he can, he can get away with a couple. He now you guys some... know what it's like being trapped in our show. <laughs> what seems to be stops? We just start going off. <laughs> knowing, knowing what huge film minds they are, I think we should keep them around for the deep cut and the film fight tonight. They um, ain't got so... things to do. The, the uh, deep uh, cut, if if they want to stick okay. cut, because this is relevant to possession as well. Actually, you guys, if you haven't seen this, you'll talk really dig. Yeah. It. Th- Talk about a movie with just dark energy where you're like, how this got made. Um, So our deep cut for tonight, this is a special segment that we do on the show pretty regularly where we do a deep cut that we want to give more exposure to. So our deep cut for the night is 1979's Arabato. Um, which also which- is getting a 4K... This is a movie I thought wouldn't. This is my other favorite movie that I thought no one, no human will ever see this thing. Yeah, I had to order like a copy from Germany, you know, Spanish Spanish by by way of Germany. But this is a uh, Pedro Almodovar when he was uh, super young. His first couple movies. This is his good friend who unfortunately was a pretty serious heroin ad- addict, but he's also designed almost all of Almodovar's posters. So all those mm-hmm. beautiful cartoony posters were all this guy, Ivan Zulueta. And he made a film about a, a, a this, I mean, it's so brand new cherry in a way. It's, it's uh, a horror director who's basically totally over it and just thinks his stuff's kind of becoming a joke and he's and kind of bored and he's, and he's dabbled with drugs and other sensations, but he wants to make dabbled. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, but he's like in and out of that world. He, uh, he basically uh, meets this, this very bizarre character who is kind of hard to pin down, but he's like the cousin of, of this girl he's dating and he meets him in the country, but the guy's kind of like, uh, almost like a Kenneth Anger type filmmaker. He's just shooting everything on Super 8. It's all stream of conscious, almost George Kucher, like these stream of conscious videos that he makes. And and he's really off. Like there's something odd about this guy. And it's about their two stories uh, coming together. And then at a certain point, the younger one starts to realize, I think there might be a vampiric quality to the film camera itself draining my life and putting in these red frames of celluloid. And so it becomes a mystery halfway through where the filmmaker has to start investigating from these film film that's being left for him. And he goes down this rabbit hole and it's very strange, very dark. It's so weird. And it's all about filmmaking and the act of film taking something from you all while the characters snort heroin. Um, And so (laughs) it is just talk about a film with dark energy. It's just this fevered dream film. It's it's another one of those. I don't know how it got made. Spell the title for me. What is it? A R R E B A T O. It actually um, would be the Rapture if it was translated. The Rapture, Rapture, but it's just Arabato. And so we picked this as our deep cut tonight because this has been so hard to see forever. Like the only way I even heard of this was um, Elric proselytizing it over and over and just saying like, (laughs) you have to see it to the point where I borrowed his German Spanish pressing. Um, And I only heard about it. it. There's a video store in Chicago and I walked in about 12 years ago. 
uh, called Odd Obsession, and they had this cover, and it was in Spanish, no subtitles, and and it haunted me because every day I'd look at the cover, and it said it's like Videodrome two years before Videodrome came out, and I kept looking at, it, but I couldn't, I didn't want to watch it because I wouldn't have understood it, so it just stuck with me. And then one day I, I got lucky enough to find one that did have the subtitles. Oh no, it's like an eight millimeter Videodrome. It yeah. really is. Yeah, um, the film so version, yeah. yeah. And so this is finally getting a decent Blu-ray release here. And cinema. And cinema. And cinema. Yeah, they are doing. It's going to be all all through. So Possession and Arabato all through October are both going to be playing across America, which is just mind blowing. These two movies are so wild. This one's uh, from Altered Innocence is the company, and it's going to be in New York at the Anthology Film Archive um, next week. Mm-hmm. I, I might even, I'm, I'm going to be out there. I might even get to catch it. So, it, and it will slowly move across America. So it is coming to LA. I saw some LA dates. So that we wanted to make sure we plug it. So if we it can turn you guys onto that after the, the joy you gave us with Lisa Nova's movie, then we're good. <laughs> yeah. I'm there. Sounds I'm cool. going to see Possession yeah. in the theater. Yeah. Yeah, that is I am so excited to see both of these in the theater. It's just such a rare treat to be able to see yeah. these kind of fever dreams, dark energy films. I love that yeah, phrase. Um sure. just kind of, you know, <laughs> this leaves you with something it imprints. So yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Absolute pleasure. And thank you both so much for brand new cherry flavor. And I can't wait to see what you guys come up with next. I will watch everything yeah, that you do. Good stuff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Good to see you. Guys. To talk to you. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Fight edition. I just woke up everyone in the house. Like I didn't say it on air, but I am broadcasting this out of my childhood bedroom from my parents' house while I'm on the East Coast for a um, film convention. And so I'm staying with them for a couple of days. And totally worth it. I guarantee my parents are like, what the fuck is happening in there? So so not much different from my teen years. Uh, so I think this is good. I think that you're going to channel this raw energy. Here we go. Uh, so we are talking. We're going to. OK, so I thought it'd be funny because at the top of the show, I am watch, watching the new Mike Flanagan show. Uh, we're in the middle of the show. We're watching brand new cherry flavor. Both of them have imagery of cat uh, odd imageries of cats or cat destruction or something to do with cats. So instead of going with the Hollywood movie fight that we thought we might do, I was like, yeah, we were going to do that like- fight. We were talking like Mulholland Drive versus Baby Jane. Sleep, oh, sleep, uh, starry, starry eyes. eyes. Yeah. yeah. And finally, we were like, let's just do cats. That's more fun. What? Yes, cat so, face off. So, what are we doing? Which two movies are we are up? doing? Sleepwalkers versus How Sue. A totally <laughs> logical fight. I, I, did, I, I, I laughed when I realized they're twenty five. They're exactly twenty five years apart. So that's exciting. Um, that's they, cool. They they use uh they use them in very different ways. The cats. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not just about the cats. It's about the movies here. But the, you know, one, one film. One eats people, and in the other one, the the big cats eat people, but the little cats are the good guys. So yeah, and in Sleepwalkers, um, they're yeah, because well, in Sleepwalkers, they're they're like shape the people that Brian Krause and his mom Alice Creek. They are uh like shapeshifters slash, but one of the forms, and I think maybe it's their true form, is like wear cats. Or Weird something, cat. yeah, but, but real cat, cats yeah. hate them, yes, um, which doesn't make sense. No, I looked it up. This is so funny. So, I love this movie in the 90s, uh, and I still think it's really cool. I think it's Mick's best film, Mick Garris's best film, because it's everyone's really good and it's really creepy. It's good, mm-hmm. but I had, I like you, I just was like, oh, it's just cats kill them. I was just looking it up, and if you actually Google in why are the cats 
the enemies and sleepwalkers somebody has written this i don't know if it's true but they're like well because they are part of uh they represent an egyptian mythology the underworld they are uh they're realizing these shapeshifters who are draining life force should no longer be alive so they're there to drag them back to the underworld and i was like oh this is fantastic whoever's writing this shit is gold so Um, i don't know how much truth but i love it and incest um and there we go um, yes, and imagine, imagine uh, yeah, I mean, imagine now Alice Krieg and the uh, the incest as the mom. She she makes an impression. She would later become the Borg queen. So you know, and she's gorgeous in this movie. Mm-hmm. She does. She just glows. And that song that they use over and over, sleepwalking in it, like it is just beautifully done in this movie. Um, there's parts of this movie that work for me. There's parts that um, haven't aged as well as I want them to. Um, some of the transformations and stuff. But that said, when this came out, I found it to be very watchable. Um, oh, yeah, I remember, it's, it's slick, yeah. I remember um, defending this film a lot in college because I owned a VHS copy of it. And people being like, why do you own Sleepwalkers? And me saying, because it's fun. It's got cats. <laughs> And it's it's a, a, Clovis, Clovis, the police cat. Yeah, no, and I actually think it's quite a sexy, like, not, I don't know now, but like at the time, there is a sexiness to all the characters, even if it's weird and dark and mm-hmm. there's incest stuff, but Brian Krause, all these people are at their peak and there's a lot, it's a lot, a lot of it is about sexuality, which uh, mm-hmm. I thought was cool. Hasu, on the other hand, is about a group of schoolgirls who go to see their grandmother so as they can get puked on by a cat painting. Is that correct? Yeah. That is correct. And then the house tries to eat them and then the cat tries to eat them. And then one of them gets their head decapitated and then the head tries to eat the others. And then somehow they become ghosts. And I don't really know what happens for the rest of it. The piano eats somebody. The piano eats somebody. Um, My favorite part of the entire house mythology, because this is another, and I mean, we've been talking about them this entire show of the, what the fuck, how the hell did this get made? And so at some point I Googled how the fuck, how the hell did this get made? And the story that I kicked back, which sounds like the stuff of urban legend, but you know what? It's too cool. So I'm just going to say it's true, was that um, the financiers of this film had gone to the filmmaker and said, we're looking for a Japanese version of Jaws. Can you make a Japanese version of Jaws? And he said, yup, and took their money. And this is what he made. Wow. So this Obayashi, who I assume had a background in like animation and stuff. Animation. There's all sorts of like magic tricks throughout this movie Mm -hmm. and that's why it hasn't really aged look this movie so it did appear on the new beverly calendar episode we just did because it's going to be playing in the middle of uh october and it is a must if you have never seen this on a screen it's one thing to watch it at home but to watch it with other people it is one probably maybe the one of the most wild movies ever made because it's just you could not predict moment to moment what is about to go down Uh I have no idea what happens in this movie, but I will watch it. It did a re-release to see, uh, cinema when I was in yeah. p- my PhD program in Richmond because I drove from Richmond up to D.C. to see it playing. Um, and so it would have been like 2009, 10, thereabouts. Yeah, I think it was when I first um, got here too. So it must have been right around the same time. And then Criterion yeah. put it out. So it has a good a good rep for as crazy yeah. a movie as it is. Uh, but it, you can't put it on a box. Uh, that's what's so fun. And there's, I think there's one part where the cat's like on the piano playing the piano, like going back it's, and forth across. The and it's structured as a kid's movie. Yeah. It's structured as like a tween girl sleepover that has like a ghost story edge. And then I have no idea what the fuck happens from there. Like there's a killer piano. There's a killer house. There's a killer cat. Um, but the cat isn't scary all the time. And then there's just these crazy animation sequences. And um, a cat, and that, a giant picture of a cat that pukes this blood all over pukes. them, which is wi- a wild shot. Um, yeah. This, so yeah. in terms of a fight, I would liken this 
to imagine okay you're sleepwalkers you've just brought the best knife ever made to a bazooka fight and that is the unfortunate state i think hasu blows sleepwalkers away with a bazooka yeah. and and as I, as good a fight as it could have been i will say on a purely cat level sleepwalkers all the way but as movie fight is we are not just critiquing the cattiness of the movie it is not about felinity of felinity felinity it is it's not about the cats um it is definitely about the movie as a whole for this one and how sue i'm still trying to figure that movie out and i love it and i will go see it again in the theaters this year so um yeah sorry sleepwalkers you're dead to us yeah we still love it we still love it but you know uh, but yeah, so that's movie fight, movie cat fight. Uh, and that will take us out for today's episode. Uh, I think we touched on a rather a lot of bonkers movies. And that's what we yeah. like to do. Launch well, October. quickly, before we head out, um, let me remind everybody that we just released t-shirts, y'all. Colors of the Dark t-shirts. And it just has this amazing graphic on it designed by um, Hag Cult, amazing artist. We love her. Um, and it is just this beautiful giallo design. And so definitely head to the Fangoria website and check out our Colors of the Dark t-shirts. And they've got some new Fango shirts. They've got kid-sized ones now. So my kids are going to be decking out in Fango swag as well. I got mine um, already. I got I got one uh, came yesterday, I think. So I'll... Oh, that's uh, awesome. Nice and soft. And uh, so, you know, who knows how long they'll last. So pick it up. Yeah. Get those Colors of the Dark shirts while you can at Fangoria.com. Thank you guys so much. We will be back in a couple of weeks and uh, in two weeks, actually. And just so you can do some homework in advance, I highly recommend picking up the book, My Heart is a Chainsaw. Yeah. And watching every single American slasher film ever made in the history of slasher. If you can do that all within the next two weeks, you will be prepped for that episode. Uh, thanks for listening and just don't forget there's also deep cuts over on the Patreon if you need a hit in between episodes we are there The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.